I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. My guest today is Ruth Richardson, the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, a strategic alliance of philanthropic foundations working together to transform global food systems. Ruth was recently appointed chair of the UN Food Systems Summit Champions Network. She brings over 25 years of experience in food systems to her current role. She was previously director of the Unilever Canada Foundation, founding chair of the Canadian Environmental Grant Makers Network, founder and chair of the Small Change Fund, and the first environmental director at the Metcalf Foundation. I really enjoyed chatting with Ruth. We discussed some big picture issues and principles of systems thinking that guides the work of the Global Alliance. But by no means is this a theoretical conversation about approaches to addressing several of the problems with our current global food system. We also get into the details of how the guiding principles of the Global Alliance can be practically implemented. Ruth believes that building the future of food calls for deep collaboration among philanthropy, researchers, grassroots movements, the private sector, farmers and food systems workers, indigenous peoples, government, and policymakers. Listen to this episode to find out how Ruth Richardson and the Global Alliance for the Future of Food are working to make this possible. Ruth Richardson, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Really happy to be here and looking forward to the discussion now. Why don't we start off from the beginning? <laughs> How did you get interested in food and agriculture? And then maybe we can get into the, some of the work you're doing now. Absolutely. Well, my mom um, is from a farm family. So she grew up on a farm. Um, and it was a relatively kind of diversified farm when she was young. Um, and it got bigger and sort of um, more, quote unquote, industrialized as she grew up. And then as, as um, my uncle and cousins got into the business, I grew up in the city, so I'm a city girl, but I was very close to my grandparents. And so I spent a lot of time on that farm. Um, so I followed my grandfather around as he did chores, as he fed the dairy cattle. And I helped uh, do the chicken catching when it was time for the chicken harvest um, and spent many weekends and holidays up there. So it sort of got into my soul. And um, I just, I think from an early age, just saw the importance of food and agriculture to our lives, for our families, for our communities. Um, and that stuck with me in my professional life. And so your first uh, entry into the professional world was through the world of food. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the roles you played before uh, coming to the Global Alliance for the Future of Food? Yes, absolutely. So my, my background academically is in environmental studies. So I sort of came at um, issues from an environmental perspective. Um, uh, as life happens, you know, I had a whole track planned, um, and that track got interrupted when I got pregnant with my first child earlier than I had planned to. Um, and so I was on maternity leave and was trying to figure out, um, you know, what to do in terms of a new life plan. And, um, very serendipitously, an opportunity fell in my lap, which I never, ever imagined, which was to work for Unilever, Unilever Canada. 
so it was working within corporate affairs at Unilever um, and really working on both public relations and government relations. Now, the important thing about that is that the Unilever Canada plant was in downtown Toronto. So they're very conscious and, and concerned about their impacts on the environment, uh, you know, water quality, air quality. And so as part of the reporting mechanism um, to, um, you know, work with the community about emissions. Uh, that led me into the foundation world because um, I actually proposed to the president of Unilever Canada at the time to set up a corporate foundation. Um, of course, given what Unilever does, um, that was about the environment, it was also about food. Um, and so I became introduced to philanthropy at that time. Uh, I worked at Unilever for about seven or eight years. And, um, and once it was time to move on, I was really interested in going to a private family foundation because I just felt that that would give me the platform to do much more interesting creative work that didn't have to be so concerned about the brand of the company. Um, and so that happened. I went and worked at the Metcalf Foundation and I helped start for them their first environment program. As we looked at the environment in Canada, and especially along the southern border and the settled landscapes, you can't, you can't consider environmental conservation without considering agricultural land. And so that brought us into considerations around land preservation, also the viability of agriculture, um, given Toronto's multicultural makeup, we were really interested in, in helping new Canadians connect to farming, also young people connecting to farming. So that was a really exciting period of my um, professional development um, and supporting a lot of the early initiatives around sustainable food and agriculture in Canada. Uh, I then left the Metcalf Foundation. I was doing a lot of consulting. Um, and that consulting ended up being a lot about collaboratives and a lot about working with systems um, and also a lot to do with food systems. And so that sort of set me up very nicely for um, the opportunity that came along that um, ended up being the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, which, of course, is a collaborative and is working on food systems from a systems perspective. So that's a, a short sense of my arc. <laughs> yeah, I find it interesting. You started off in the uh, having an insight into food and ag through the corporate world, and then eventually coming out of that into philanthropy. Uh, and the reason for that, I find, is because you kind of need to see all sides of this complex, um, convoluted system that we have uh, that feeds the world. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize that... Uh, there's no simple way to even articulate what our current problems are because when you discuss food or how uh, how land is uh, used or how food is transported or how it eventually is distributed to end consumers, it's almost impossible to discuss the economics of food without getting into nearly every socioeconomic issue that impacts different communities, cultures, countries around the world. And so you know, to try to even boil it down to one system is 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 impossible. I mean, you can try it, and usually you will get it wrong. I think, and so I find that in interesting that you started off with um, the corporate world, where maybe you had a very focused goal of getting uh, that brand to do the right thing, uh, or that multinational really to do the right thing globally. Um, do you think you would ever go back before we get into Global Alliance for the Future of Food? Do you ever think you'd go back into the private sector and ever focus on one corporation? Not to not to say it's a good or bad thing, but do you think that would ever interest you? And if it did, why why would you even consider doing that? 
Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't think anybody's asked me that recently. So I <laughs> um, have to think about that in, in quick, uh, quick study. Um, so I, I mean, ultimately, the way I see it is that a system is made up of system actors, and we're all system actors, right? Nobody is not a system actor. Um, and all those actors have a role to play. And all those actors work in relationship to one another for, you know, better or worse. Um, it's very easy to vilify certain actors, and that happens a lot in food systems. Um, but ultimately, from my perspective, and, and something the Global Alliance tries to do, is to really create a space for all of those um, sectors at different scales from different countries across geographies, you know, whether you're talking about private sector policymakers or civil society organizations or grassroots groups or farmers, um, to come together to try to solve these problems together. So what I would say is, I don't know what my future holds in terms of what sector I might end up in next. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's in some ways irrelevant. What I'm interested in is helping to create space for those conversations and to work through the really tough issues together. Because I think only through that are we going to find a way to better solutions that lead us to a better future of food. That was a perfect answer. I mean, I think you've set me up perfectly for where I want to go next with this because um, it, it, you're, you're so right to say that you can easily vilify certain actors in this complex system that is our global food economy or our global food system. And each one of those players in this complex system come at it with their own um, priorities, their own values, their own uh, agenda, so to speak. And... Yes, not everyone in that in, in this tapestry of actors are necessarily the always have the best intentions in mind, but for the most part, they're all playing a role that is feeding the world. And the only way to actually bring about meaningful change is to engage with them and to create an environment where, even if you had to break it down into three simple buckets, right? One is those who are just purely on economic incentive. They run the economic engine for the global food system, food companies, distributors, everyone who profits from the manufacturing and sale of food. If you have the environmentalists who are only thinking about how our natural resources are getting depleted, how we are contributing to climate change with our food system, they approach it with their own list of values and priorities. And on the other end, if you really had to simple, oversimplify this, you have those who are interested in the social implications of the food system. So how does it impact people? How does it impact farmers? How does it impact uh, anyone who consumes food at the end of the day? So I I think this is a good setup to where we, we need to go next with this conversation because the more I was reading about the, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food, I you know, frankly was very impressed by, by, by what you've laid out but at the same time, wondering how can you possibly have such a big, audacious uh, agenda and actually get anything done? So maybe maybe now is a good time to talk a little bit more about the work you've been doing at the Global Alliance and uh, what it is and what exactly you do there. And, and maybe then we'll see where this conversation goes. Yeah, absolutely. So great. I can give you the quick, quick um, kind of Global Alliance 101. Um, essentially, the Global Alliance was started in 2012. Um, it was uh, initiated you know, like ostensibly by Prince Charles, who gave a speech at Georgetown University called The Future of Food. Um, and in that speech, he said, we really have to tackle the food system. 
And what we need to do is be more global about it, to be more systemic about it, and to be more collaborative about it. There are a number of, of um, philanthropy representatives in the room that said, he's got a point, he's probably right. And Prince Charles said, if you guys are serious about the potential of a, of a global philanthropic collaborative, I'll host the first meeting, which he did at his farm high group in 2012. At that meeting, basically this group of about 30 foundations um, decided to you know, agree to disagree on certain things, but to, to, to determine where there was common ground. And they identified a number of areas where they felt that there was common ground, for instance, public research, agroecology, the economics of the food system, different themes that they felt that um, there was enough collective interest. I started in the spring of 2013 um, when it was recognized that all these folks were really busy and that it was hard to run a collaborative off the side of their desk. And so in um, coming in in the early days, I really helped support kind of the strategic directions of the Global Alliance. And that was to say, what do we really want to focus on? And so I solicited input from the members and out of this early list of all sorts of common areas, common interests, three things were identified. Agroecology, or sort of, you know, agriculture based on ecological principles, health and well-being, and really trying to expand the metrics around health from just nutritional inputs to thinking about broader issues of well-being and, you know, community cohesion, et cetera. And then the economics of the food system, in particular, true cost accounting. What is the true cost of food? And so um, we ventured forth into these three different areas. We did lots of research. We did lots of convenings, again, trying to create that space for different stakeholders. Um, since the beginning, we also added climate. So really had a fourth focus on climate and food systems. Uh, so that's essentially how we've worked. And um, you know, some of the issues that we've been um, really putting forward. Uh, Last summer, it occurred to me that after, you know, eight or nine years of doing this, that certain things were coming up over and over and over again, and not just from the Global Alliance and my members, but from the very collaborative group of people that we were working with. Again, private sector, policymakers, Indigenous peoples, farmers, everybody was ultimately saying the same things over and over again. So we did an analysis of everything we've done over eight years and essentially identified seven calls to action. Um, um, we just put, it, just put out into the world recently. Um, but essentially we see those seven calls to action as calls to action from essentially the world <laughs> to the world. Um, that we're, you know, these are kind of the imperatives. They're the non-negotiables of what we need for food system transformation. Those seven calls to action include things like participatory rights-based governance, uh, includes um, uh, public research for the public good, of course, a focus on externalities and really understanding the true cost of food, and the list goes on. But these are the things, again, that have just come up over and over and over again. And if I can just loop back to your, your comment about how you've got those, you know, folks interested in the economics of the food system and those that are interested in the environment, those that are interested on the social side, what I would say is that is coming together. And I, I think that even though those camps exist and we need to be real about that, um, I think that the silos are starting to break down as we start to see the interconnections. I also happen to be the chair of the Champions Network for the UN Food System Summit. Um, and so I'm privy to a lot of conversations within that process and again, I would just say you're really seeing people come together 
around a common agenda, around common values, and understanding the indivisible nature of these issues. It's not just about the economics or just about the environment or just about people. Um, all these things, and especially with COVID, we're seeing all these things is so intimately connected. Yeah, I would urge anyone um, listening to check out the the seven principles um, because I've until I saw that on your website, I don't think I'd seen those various crucial, critical issues facing our food system articulated so simply um, mm-hmm. together in one place. And it it helps you really, it helps anyone really who's curious about food and, and how food gets to our, our plates and to our grocery stores and to restaurants. It helps you really understand the the complexities involved and the fact that Often when we're arguing about what's right in the food system, we aren't even arguing about the same things. And it, and, if, and, it, and really, I think what you said earlier about creating a space for all the actors, all the players, all the participants in this global food economy to, to have a seat at the table, to come forth with their priorities and, and incentives and, um, and values, but also work collaboratively to, to bring about the change that we so desperately need because, you know, part of the problem is that, and here's, I guess, the big elephant in the room, I suppose, which is we are not just dealing with a problem, but we are dealing with a problem. And I say a problem, I mean the state of our food system. We're dealing with a problem that is catastrophic in nature at the moment because of climate change. And so it does change the urgency around which we have to do something not to say 10, 20 years ago, there was an urgency, but by most estimates, um, if you believe the science, we are very quickly running out of time. So my, I guess my next question to you would be really, how are we, from a practical standpoint, or maybe you can tell me more from what you've seen so far and, and your coalition um, of, of foundations, how are we going to tackle some of these, you know, because when you think about, let's just take one issue, one of the principles like resiliency uh, become so important in the time of COVID, especially this pandemic has made it clear, or even equity for that matter, right? How do we, how do we support this industrialized food system and make it more equitable when it hasn't managed to do that over the last 70, 100 years? Um, and can we how much of this can we truly change within assuming our time horizon before things get really bad on this planet is maybe 20, 30 years ahead. So your thoughts on how are we able to tackle some of these bigger issues within the time frame that we are seem to be operating in to, mm. to mitigate the damage that, that is going to be coming with climate change? Yeah, um, really, really great question now. And I think that where I will start is where you started, I think, which is the principles. So we have seven principles that guide everything that we do. They, they form the vision of the Global Alliance, and they're also a diagnostic tool that we use each and every day. And those principles are, as you mentioned, resilience, renewability, equity, diversity, health, inclusion, and interconnectedness. And when I talk about principles, which I do very, very often, um, a lot of people sort of think, that's great. Those are nice things. They're posters on the wall. For us, they're not. They're deeply powerful. And in fact, there's a great Canadian, Chris Kutarna, who sort of studies, you know, sort of the zeitgeist of the moment. And he's got this great article that talks about principles and values being the most important social technologies that we have 
to help us through periods of disruption and upheaval. Well, there's never been a greater period of disruption and upheaval than now. And we need to go to these principles um, to help us um, move forward as guides. Principles are ultimately the goals of the system, right? And we know from systems thinking, if you change the goal of the system, you change the system. So if your goal is to get as much, um, you know, sort of quick nutrition around the globe based on long supply chains, you're going to create a certain kind of system. If your goal is to empower women smallholder farmers to, to feed their own families and their own communities through short supply chains, you're going to create a very different system. So what are the goals of the system that we can agree on? We believe that those seven principles are the goals of the system. And so therefore they need to guide how we build that system. So, um, you know, take uh, renewability, for instance. I was asked to give a keynote to Nestle um, at their headquarters on our principles and what they mean to us and what they should mean for Nestle. So take any company like that, um, take any, any actor like that. Um, renewability basically is that, you know, the things that we've relied on like water and soil <clears throat> that have renewed themselves over millennia need to continue to do so. Well, we know that the food system right now um, has led to 33% of soils being degraded, 20% of aquifers are overexploited, 60% of biodiversity loss, and 90% of living marine resources are exploited. You know, the list goes on and on and on. So if, if renewability is a goal of ours, then all of us need to either have production systems that are renewable, or as consumers, we need to make choices about the food that we eat if we have those choices um, to buy food that is from a system that is renewable. And you could go through each of the principles and, and talk about that. So to your question around how do you practically create change? Um, well, I think, first of all, we just need to keep preaching this, you know, over and over and over again. You know, one big part of systems change is the more that we can just keep pointing out the failures of the old system and pointing to a new system, um, you know, that's an incredibly important part of the change agenda. The other thing we can do is find examples where this is happening and help them to succeed, help them to be translated to other regions um, and to really build the successes of systems that are living these principles. So let me give you one very powerful example. It's called community-based natural farming. It's in Andhra Pradesh in the southeast of India. And it is a whole movement within that state to move towards agriculture that's based on ecological pr um, principles, agriculture that's based on seed sharing and community support. Um, you know, the list goes on. This model of farming is showing it has huge positive benefits. I went on a tour of um, many of the, the farms that are utilizing this, this approach. And I just started jotting down anything anybody said that was positive that's happening. So in a drought stricken region, they're using 80% less water. They're using way less energy because they don't have to pump the water anymore. Um, you know, their, their cash crops are lasting longer at market. They're getting more at the market for their cash crops. Their rice is lasting longer in their, in their homes. Um, you know, there's a greater sense of social cohesion. I mean, you know, again, the list goes on and on. Um, this is, is taking off in Andhra Pradesh, even kind of across India, there's more and more interest. Um, I understand they now are thinking about um, a memorandum of understanding with the government of Kenya, with the government of Mexico. That's how 
we support change. We find those beacons of hope. We find those bright lights and good examples, and we shine a light on them. We help them grow and succeed and help them, you know, teach others how to adopt similar approaches. Is that an effort that you do as an alliance or is it through, as in your your organization does, or is it through the different foundations that are your members in your alliance? So I guess I'm asking from a practical standpoint, how are you able to even identify such initiatives and to what extent does the alliance or your member uh, nonprofits play a role in funding such initiatives and then mm-hmm. finding ways for them to grow or replicate in other parts of the country or perhaps the world? Yeah, great question. So the Global Alliance itself is not a funding body. Um, We're an alliance of foundations. All the foundations that are members are funding bodies. Um, And when you think about it, we sit in an incredibly privileged and unique position because with almost 30 members, if you add up the combined list of grantees and partners around the world, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of civil society organizations, farmers organizations, of indigenous communities. Um, So there's just this great plethora of um, organizations and individuals that we touch through our membership. So our members very much support initiatives like this. So uh, one of our members is the Azim Premji Philanthropic Initiatives, um, and they're supporting this um, uh, uh, farming model that I just told you about. Um, And so that's how we became introduced to it was basically through them. What the Global Alliance does do, though, is um, we're, you know, we're big advocates and communicators about um, our approach, about our principles and about some of these examples. So we actually have an initiative called Beacons of Hope, where we try to identify, again, these bright lights across sectors, their private sector examples, their farmer examples, their civil society examples, their policy examples. And we try to shine a light on them and really try to advance those and help people see what's possible. Because I think that's part of it, right? It's like helping people imagine what is possible. Um, One of my favorite quotes is is, um, Ben Okri, who's a Nigerian poet, who says, the truth about stories is that's all we are. We are the stories that we plant in ourselves and we're the stories that we plant in others. And if we change the story, we change our lives. So part of this for me is like, how do we tell a different story? How do we get people to, to imagine a different future and to start planting that in themselves and in others so that we can actually really take advantage of, of what is possible. Because uh, we all get stuck in, you know, in limitations and saying, oh, this can't be done. Um, but we think that, um, you know, especially with these examples in front of us, that that we can actually really build a much better future. I love that quote. I, I think it reminds me of a um, I forget who said this, but I, I think I'm definitely paraphrasing and, and butchering it most likely. But in the in the absence of meaning, context is everything. And so if you just, I guess if you change the story, you change the context around a particular conversation. And I, and I do think um, lately I've realized with, with a lot of um, folks within the, the food movement or the food industry overall who uh, have all well-meaning intentions um, are just tend to find themselves debating others within uh, the same space or within the same movement, uh, partly because they're they're narrowly focusing on one aspect of the story and finding an answer to it. So no one's really wrong. Everyone's just looking at it from their own limited perspective. Um, And then then I think as you, you take steps back and you 
start to see the bigger picture, you can truly identify the perhaps the points of connection where everyone can win. Um, but it does take acknowledgement that you've got to have humility that your own solution is not necessarily the only one. And some, some people just don't have that. And I guess that's, uh, and, and you know, usually that leads me to think about, um, not to bash on the private sector because I'm, I work in the private sector, so I shouldn't, but, um, Part of the challenge that has happened with food is the way it has evolved into this global industrialized um, machine of sorts. That is, um, I don't think you can necessarily blame any individual actors or blame any individual companies. There are definitely some that have benefited more than others in the process. But for the most part, if you truly had to get to the root of some of our biggest challenges with our food system today, it is connected to this industrialization of our food system. And with global trade, with the ability of a few companies around the world concentrating um, or controlling or, or maybe perhaps having uh, an extended influence on supply chains, you end up in a place where because they are prioritizing nothing but efficiency or output or amongst if they look at the seven principles they're like yeah yeah renewability is great equity is important we believe in all these things i'm sure no big food company will say they don't believe in that but most of them or all of them are public companies they're answerable to their shareholders they're judged by their um their quarterly profits um and so often uh, and this is not because I'm trying to be a skeptic of, of uh, global free markets and uh, and say that it is impossible for them to do the right thing. I think a lot of big companies can do the right thing. But I guess my question is, how do they ever prioritize anything but the most efficient, the most profitable, the most scalable way to do business uh, when that's all they're judged by and that's all that their value of their stock is based on and that's all that every senior executive compensation or growth or success is is judged by so how do we how do we inherently challenge that thinking if they are the dominant player in this or they're the dominant actor in this play uh they're the leading player here uh, they may they may say they agree with the principles but but when you get to the root of it they never prioritize the thing, the principles that truly matter to to people say in parts of Andhra Pradesh India or perhaps in parts of Kenya so i know that's not really a question but it's leading up to the question of uh what is your experience being in in trying to get big food companies to to really bring about meaningful change and maybe perhaps you've had experience in working with them to 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 see how they're actually making it happen despite these limitations with what what I I don't want to call it capitalism but maybe it's market fundamentalism that markets the solution to everything right so how do we work within the market but bring about meaningful change also keeping in mind that time horizon always we have twenty thirty years maybe yeah uh, so I have I have noted Peter Bacher who is the head of the World Business Council on Sustainable Development called for nothing less than a transformation of capitalism so perhaps that's the answer. <laughs> um, but recognizing that that's a long-term goal and not an easy thing to accomplish, um, you know, I do think we need different business models because I think you've hit the nail on the head, right? It's, it's about the profit mentality. It's about the way companies are structured. 
Um, they're accountable to shareholders. Shareholders want profit. Um, and that's, you know, sort of full stop. There are new models developing um, where shareholders, you know, have more freedom and flexibility to look at other measures of success. Um, so, you know, the more that we can support these kind of innovative business models and a transition, um, the better. And I think that will happen. Like I hear, um, I hear in you, and I certainly share this if I'm correct, um, you know, a sort of frustration or concern about that, right? Um, but ultimately, the companies that are not, you know, keeping up with the times are going to fail. You cannot fail when you're, you know, decimating the environment and your your workers are being poisoned um, or not paid anything or, you know, like you cannot succeed long term under those conditions. So it's only those companies that keep up and actually understand that they, their success is rooted in the success of the planet and of people. Um, those companies will succeed. So, um, you know, I think that's that's one thing. The second thing I would say on this is there are tools that are becoming increasingly recognized to help companies understand this and to create frameworks for them to, to look at their behavior, to look at their impacts and to make changes. So um, as an example, the Global Alliance together with the European Commission and UN Environment developed what is the most holistic comprehensive framework for what we call true cost accounting um, on food systems. It's called Teabag or Food. You can find it on our website. And it looks at the entire value chain from production through processing and consumption and waste. And then it looks at a very comprehensive list of externalities and impacts, including ecological externalities impacts like water quality, air quality, greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, health externalities, we're looking at um, you know, diet-related diseases. We're looking at, um, you know, uh, work conditions. We're looking at environmental contamination, um, the spread of zoonotic diseases, all of these impacts and externalities. And then it even goes into social and cultural externalities and impacts. So, for instance, the displacement of Indigenous peoples from palm oil plantations. Um, that's an externality and an impact. You can never put a dollar figure on that, but you have to see it and you have to value it. Um, in terms of the full analysis of your business. So, you know, in the early days when we're coming up with this, people scratched their heads and said, how is this ever going to be possible? Um, it's really hard. I'm not trying to um, sugarcoat it. It's really hard to do this. But more and more companies are interested in utilizing tools like this to analyze their, um, you know, their, their operations. Um, and I think as more information comes out about these impacts on their own and how they're connected, um, the more hopefully, you know, the, the smart and forward looking companies will be able to transition. Yeah, I think the idea of true cost accounting, uh, measuring externalities is is, is something I, I try to do a lot more reading about lately. And I've been doing some work with um, on the most more from a. Uh, from the side of startups, less from big corporations who are looking at ESG and finding ways to uh, quantify their impact as companies so that they become more attractive to investors. And and it's it's fascinating to see that conversation. It's only started in the last two or three years, I think, in the investment community. But this idea that 
it, it and it, it's not so much even the idea about wanting to do the right thing it's not even positioned as a value necessarily but and i think it's okay as long as it gets done right it doesn't matter why it's getting done it's often because i think people are starting to truly see that if even if your incentive in your priority is nothing but the survival uh, of this economic model this global economic model for food where you you know you mass produce food you 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 do monocultures whatever it is that it takes to produce food and distribute it to feed the world um but recognizing for that model to even continue um from a purely financial standpoint we are starting to reach certain boundaries on how much land and water uh and pollution and fossil fuels we are able to continue to extract to keep that system running so it's almost like uh we've reached a point and we're starting to reach a point where i think a lot more market fundamentalists or people who believe capitalism or the way capitalism is designed today is the only way uh are recognizing the limitations they finally we're reaching those boundaries now where we if you even want the system to continue if even if you love how capitalism works you have to recognize that it's going to be in trouble because we're going to run out of resources um then again you will encounter a few people who think we will we'll innovate ourselves out of this problem in the next 20 30 years and it's quite possible on some things we might find technology solutions for it but if you really look holistically it's impossible that we're going to innovate ourselves out of the rate at which we are overfishing or the rate at which we are depleting our topsoil um unless some you know massive new alternatives emerge to how we can grow food um sustainably um i don't think any of that is going to happen so i think my point is we're reaching a a place an interesting point where you don't have to um and i hate this sounds kind of uh callous but you don't need to care to want to do this it it just sort of it is it is part of everyone's survival because of this time horizon that we are in even if all you care about is quarterly profits you're going to have to look 10 15 years ahead and ask yourselves if you will still be a viable company if you continue to destroy the very land um mm-hmm. that you depend on to produce the food or the farmers that you depend on to grow that food um and again i think partly the consumer awareness is increasing around whether it's how farm workers are treated the living wages they're paid uh and that shift starts to happen so i hate to 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 sound cynical but yet at the same time sort of optimistic in the most morbid way in the sense that no one really cares but we're going to make the change anyway but i i think it's an interesting confluence of trends and and shifts that are happening and true cost accounting back to your point i think is if we can if we can incentivize someone to to not cut down the tree um because today in today's world at least in the historical way in which we measure value the tree had no value unless you cut it down and turned it into um a weapon or 2x4 and that's really how this all began <laughs> and and eventually we reached this point where there's not enough trees left so i have no question there but i'd love for you to react yeah to that. <laughs> well I, I, two thoughts come to mind for me now um one is i'm really glad you brought up this um point about investors because i think what that connects to is the issue of risk Mm-hmm. You know, that a lot of investors don't like huge risk and yet when you're when you look at certain companies there's massive risk there, right? Um in terms of their business plans, like often you know, you have these very ambitious business plans on how to grow a business and yet you don't have the land mass to actually support that. I mean, just talk about really 
obvious risk, <laughs> um, you know, not to mention all the other risks around, you know, having soils to, to support this, having fish stocks to support businesses, et cetera. So I think the issue of risk is actually, you know, really, really critical to this. Um, and I think could be quite a, an interesting strategy in terms of helping to point out, you know, where there are really significant risks based on, you know, planetary boundaries and social boundaries. Um, so that's one point. The other point is, um, you know, your point around innovation and really sort of finding the thing that will help us, right? And I hear a lot of this, especially around the Food Systems Summit, you know, what's what's that silver bullet? Um, and you know, I just, I, and there may be some amazing new ideas out there and I'm totally open to that. And I think that would be fabulous. However, I'm really struck by the fact that we have innovators, we have innovations staring us in the face. They're right there and they can have huge and quick impact. So again, I go back to community-based natural farming as an example, that's an amazing innovation in a sense, right? Um, and it's there and, it's, and it's, it's creating tons of positive results and impact. So, you know, I think in many ways, we already know the answers. We have many of the answers in hand and we have to trust that and support that as opposed to looking for the new shiny object. Um, the other thing connected to that is there is no silver bullet. There is no one thing that is going to get out of this, get us out of this mess. It's going to have to be like everything across the board at all scales for all stakeholders and all people. And that's a daunting thing um, as a human being, right? We kind of like the simple answer. And on this one, there isn't one. There's no simple answer. It's going to require all of it. What's got you most excited if you look at the current um, solutions that exist today that you feel have the potential to be, uh, and I hesitate to use the word scale because inherently in that implies that you take something small and you make it really big and then that small thing that was great now becomes a real problem. So maybe it's replication. How do you find those things that work and find ways to deploy it at a, maybe even a local level in different parts of, of the world? Um, I know you did give an example earlier, but anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, well, and again, you know, recognizing that this is going to require all players, um, you know, that's the the um, example in Antipodesh is a, a farming example, right? But that's really about... Um, sort of production systems. Um, another really interesting example in a completely different world is my world of philanthropy, um, where one of our members um, was really interested in impact investing. And so really using their investments um, against their mission. So, you know, making sure that any investment was aligned with their mission. Um, and uh, they tried it out with a small amount of their endowment um, and it still, you know, gave them considerable profit. And yet they were also able to build up um, really good businesses. And so they've now put their entire endowment into an impact investing fund. I mean, there is another example of, you know, an actor really holding true to those values and those principles and acting on it and being rewarded for it. So it's not like they're, they're you know, subject to financial losses. They're not. Um, and so, you know, that's another great example. There are lots of business examples where EOSTA, which is a, a you know, organic um, distribution company in Europe, um, you know, again, doing really interesting things and living those values and principles and still making a profit um, and doing, doing the right thing and making sure that in the world of true cost accounting, that they're amplifying all those positive impacts and they're eliminating all of those negative impacts. So, 
you know, you could go on and on and on in terms of um, different ways that people are approaching this. Um, but, you know, there are many, many of them. Again, you know, you can find our Beacons of Hope on our website and you can see examples across all sorts of sectors and around the world um, for some inspiration. How would you define success for the Global Alliance? I mean, as I said right in the beginning, you've set out to to have this pretty audacious uh, goal uh, and vision. And, you know, your principles, as much as I love them, they also... They're pretty ambitious, right? And um, and so how do you measure your own success given you're up against a, a problem that I said is catastrophic in nature um, and we are working on pretty small time horizons to, to fix them? So keeping all that in mind, what, what does success look like for you in the long term and maybe day-to-day or month-to-month in the short term? Great question. Um, so I think sort of two things come to mind particularly. Uh, One is um, back to the story. Um, We've spent a lot of time um, working on narratives um, and the story, you know, the stories we tell ourselves, the big narratives. And there are a lot of narratives out there that you hear in the media particularly, um, where if you peel it back, you're like, hold on a sec, is this really right? So take, for example, we have to feed however many billion people by 2050. You hear this all the time, right? So we've done a full analysis of this. And if you actually, again, peel back the layers, there are a lot of inherent problems with that statement. First of all, who's the we? Or who, like, are we feeding, who, like, the us in the global north are feeding everybody in the global south, you know? Um, it's like that entire narrative is built on the sort of productivist mentality that says we've got to increase yields, we've got to grow all this food, and we've got to ship it um, to places that need it, right? How about we change that story and say, no, actually, we need to empower people to feed themselves and their communities, um, you know, really in harmony with the planet, um, in harmony with sort of soil and water for animal health, for plant health, for human health. That's a completely different story. So for me, part of the success is changing the story for people. And, and they say kind of, again, in terms of the levers of change, where are their powerful levers of change? One of the most powerful levers of change is changing that story. So um, I think that's one thing that would be success for me is really thinking about um, how do we connect to others on the global stage, thought leaders, the local, you know, national, international level, and really help change the story that we're living by. The second thing I would say in terms of success is, um, you know, on the relationship side. So you've got, um, you know, people all around the world that are trying to work for food systems change. And we believe that part of the way that we will transform the world is through those relationships and connections. What I mean by this is think about the way any social change has happened in the history of humanity. Look at the fall of the Berlin Wall, look at women getting the right to vote, uh, look at the civil rights movement in the US, look at the rollback of apartheid in South Africa. How did those things happen? It wasn't because we had a silver bullet, we had one idea. It wasn't that we had some amazing plan and we took step A, step B, step C. No, it was just a loosely connected 
um, you know, network of individuals and organizations that had this sort of a basically commonly held goal and everybody was trying to push for it in their own way in connection with each other um, to build momentum and critical mass, which hopefully then, you know, leads to a tipping point. And so that's our theory, what we call our theory of transformation. And so part of the success is being able to do just that, to create those relationships, those networks, to reach out to others, to broaden our own networks. Who are we connecting to? Even this conversation is part of that, right? Now I know Nil, and I know, you know, we've created a relationship and you've got your whole set of networks. And if we're all trying to push towards the same goal, again, hopefully we build that momentum and hopefully you're able to, to create a tipping point in terms of our trajectory of where we're going. Um, where we need to go. That was beautiful. I, I totally agree with your idea of, um, I mean, I think you said this earlier too, changing the narrative, um, creating a new story, but also you know quite clearly that your role to play here is to be that, that glue that brings it all together. That I think you've got to occupy a very... Um, I hate to say neutral because you're not neutral necessarily. You are trying to bring about change, but at the same time, you can't personally or as an organization get attached to particular solutions as great as they might be. And your role role really is to see how that solution may connect to other possible solutions and finding ways to make it, to find win-win scenarios for everyone involved in in this whole effort to bring about transformation in the food system. And I, and I love that you led with this, with questioning the statement of uh, feeding 10 billion by 2050. I'm guilty of that myself. Uh, I use that often as the lead in. And lately I've been, it's funny that you brought that up because I've been, I've been challenging that statement myself um, because of the inherent story that lives within that statement. If you don't actually maybe, clarify what you mean by that and um and i think some ways people have assumed um when you say and I, and sometimes it's true when you say feed 10 billion the only the only solution then is to produce the most amount of food we actually have enough food today to feed 10 billion people <laughs> the problem today is right it's it's food distribution it's food waste um and so maybe we should start there uh so the so that's We've solved that already, if you can fix those two problems. So the, the issue really is in that, and I love the way you reframed it. And I think if you can start reframing that, and I'm going to start doing that on this, so this connection is going to lead for that. I'm going to make sure I clarify that statement every time I make it, that it isn't just about feeding people. It's how are we, how are we feeding them? Who is feeding them? Are we empowering them versus imposing another monoculture crop that then destroys their land uh, and actually doesn't nourish them and give them anything healthy. So that, that was, that was all very, very important. Personally, I think that really helped shift my thinking a little bit. Um, I'm going it, to, it's a related question, but uh, I, I think I definitely need to ask it. Um, you did lay out this, this idea of um, changing the narrative and, and that's a huge part of the work you're doing. And maybe maybe you'll challenge this question, and I'd love it if you actually said that the question is terrible. But I give this question, and I usually end the podcast with this, is because it it helps set the it helps bring clarity to what we're working towards. And I usually give the time frame of the next you know twenty thirty years, and so I picked the year twenty fifty. It's a nice sounding year, firstly, but also by twenty fifty, if you haven't brought about any meaningful change, uh, we're definitely not going to be in a better place then. Um, so. 
the question is really is what if we actually are able to change the narrative? What if we are actually able to get all these different players in the global food system to do their part to understand the true cost of uh, food production and distribution to find new solutions and technologies and collaborations that can make food um, and our food system meet the seven principles that you've laid out. What would that food system look like in 2050 if we, if we managed to bring about the change? Neil, that's a beautiful question. I love that question. <laughs> And the first thing I'll say is that's a hard question. We don't think it is because it's like, of course, you can imagine a beautiful future. It's actually really hard to put words to that, right? It's so easy to complain about stuff. It's so easy to point out what's what's going badly and what that looks like. It's really hard to go, oh, my God, I see this future of this, right? And yet that's what we need to do. We have to... So we have to feel that vision. We have to feel that future in order to be able to get there. And I will say I'm guilty for not having, you know, it it pasted on my wall in front of me because I don't. But let's just talk about a few things. How would it feel to you to walk out of your door right now into the most beautiful farmer's market with smiling faces of farmers, gorgeous produce, um, you know, beautiful baked goods, um, you're giving people a fair amount of money for their produce or their baked goods. They're thrilled. They know you. You connect to their farm. You know that on their farm, they've got happy children, that, you know, they've got, you know, happy animals, um, that those animals are thriving, that the soil fertility is like being built. Um, you know, that that is a beautiful vision. What if we envision children that actually never see any horrible marketing of highly processed food and there's no such thing anymore as food that will make you sick how about that as a vision right our children are eating amazing whole foods <laughs> from you know the happy farmers um, and they're no longer buying joe louis or drinking you know sugar sweetened beverages there's a beautiful vision Right. I mean, we can go on and on as we start to carve this out. This doesn't happen very often. So I'm really happy for your question, because I think this is what we have to do more and more is really picture what that could look like, because only then are we going to be able to, to find our way there. Ruth, I appreciate that answer. And I and I really appreciate this conversation today. I have enjoyed every minute of it. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And I look forward to following your work and finding new ways to collaborate and, and be a part of this change that we desperately need. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. And I hope we can be in touch again soon. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.